Good morning, everyone. Welcome to chapel. Let's begin by turning in our blue hymnals to number 12 and singing, Come, Let Us All Unite to Sing, number 12 in the blue hymnal. And please stand. Da, da, da. Come, let us all unite to sing God. Welcome to chapel and happy Valentine's Day. In Les Miserables, Victor Hugo writes that to love another person is to see the face of God. Likewise, loving God and consequently being in relationship with God also means loving others. We all too often separate intimacy with others from spirituality or intimacy with God, which does injustice to both. Being in relationship with people and loving them romantically or platonically means knowing them and vice versa, being loved means also being known. We will hear more about sexuality and spirituality and intimacy in a bit, but now I invite you to stand up and get to know, or get to know the names of the people sitting around you. As you're heading back to your seats, turn in your purple, sing the story, to number 34, you are holy, 34. Thank you. 
and I have the pleasure of introducing our two speakers this morning. Keith Graber-Miller is a professor who teaches in our Bible and Religion Department, and Ruth Stoltzfus is the director of the nursing program here at Goshen College. And they have been co-teaching the Human Sexuality course since the fall semester of 2001. However, Keith Graber-Miller has been teaching it in one way or another since 1994. And any of you who have taken a Keith course know that sexuality is a topic that inevitably will make its way into your course material no matter what it is. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to our speakers this morning, Keith Graber-Miller and Ruth Stoltzfus. Good morning. And I'm going to wish you another happy Valentine's Day. I don't think we can get enough of that. Keith and I are pleased to talk with you today about healthy and holistic friendships and about the intersection of spirituality and sexuality. In doing so, we want to start by asserting that our sexuality is intended by God to be neither incidental nor detrimental to our spirituality, but rather a fully integrated and basic dimension of that spirituality. Wait a minute. Um, can you say that a bit more clearly, please? Well, we believe that God intended for us to be sexual beings and that sexuality doesn't compete against our spirituality, but that it complements it. Sexuality and spirituality are interwoven and interrelated. God loves your sexy bodies. Yeah, it's true. It's true. The Bible itself is filled with stories about sexuality, some that are healthy and some not so much. God creates human beings together with their sexuality and sexual drives and sexual urges and calls them good. From then on, Genesis alone, that was phenomenal. <laughs> From then on, Genesis alone has 30 stories that deal with sexual issues and those often get woven into the Hebrew people's relationship with God. And then of course, we have the Song of Songs with zesty descriptions of lovers' body parts and passages that are deeply sensuous. So sensuous, in fact, that early theologians such as Dennis the Carthusian said they shouldn't be read by anyone under 30, and that only people who are reformed and purified of sensual desire would not be harmed by its reading. So the Bible really itself is a sex sexy book but sometimes the Christian tradition has feared sex over the last 20 centuries. And I wish that weren't so. In more than just biblical ways, our spirituality and sexuality are deeply intertwined. Theologically speaking, human sexuality is most fundamentally the divine invitation to find our destinies not in aloneness, but in deep connection with God and with others. Our sexuality invites urges, lures, and seduces us out of our loneliness into intimate communication and communion with God and others. 
The word sexuality itself comes from the Latin sexus, probably akin to the Latin sicare, which means to cut or to divide, suggesting incompleteness, seeking connection. That doesn't mean that if we're single, we're mutilated half beings running around looking for our better half, that would be rather perverse. But even whole beings, which we all are, need connections with other people. And that yearning for connection is not just expressed with our genitalia, but with our whole selves, with intellectual and emotional connectedness. Pastors also discover another dimension of this interrelationship between sexuality and spirituality, the reality that many, perhaps even most of the issues for which congregants go to pastors for care have a sexual dimension. Things such as infertility and the desperate, all-consuming desire to welcome children into a family, too early sexual engagement, unexpected and undesired pregnancies before or within marriages. Other reasons for seeking pastoral care include uncertainty about sexual orientation or sexual identity, unnecessary guilt about finding pleasure in the mystical maneuverings of our own sexual bodies, and early experience of forced sex or poor sexual decision-making that continues to affect present relationships. Unhealthy addictions, anticipation of marriage, and the joys of the many forms of intimacy such, as commit such commitments often bring. Also, life-destroying emotional or sexual infidelity in marital relationships, broken relationships, decline of sexual functioning, loneliness and loss of intimacy after the death or loss of a spouse or a partner. These and other issues are really the stuff of pastoral care. At some level, ministry is a form of sex work. There is also a sexuality and spirituality link in the longing to be known. That longing is often expressed with sexual desires that are also spiritual, or spiritual desires that are also sexual. In both sexual and spiritual experiences, at least those that are the most profound and most titillating, we lower our defenses and experience great vulnerability. Deep spiritual renewal and true sexual intimacy both require a letting go of control and an abandonment to the experience. In both sexual and spiritual encounters, we mystically embody a sense of union with something greater than ourselves. Our longing for intimacy with the divine often taps into that sexual energy, reminding us of our longing for deep intimacy with another human being. When we speak about connections with God, we use the language of relationships, intimacy, union, passion, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. As people who care very much about these intersections between spirituality and sexuality, and who care deeply for, um, about healthy and holistic friendships, we've had many opportunities over the years to listen to students' questions and heartfelt stories about sexu sexuality, spirituality, and relationships. It has been an honor 
and a gift to do so. We hear regularly about the pain and confusion and misery of relationships. And in our offices and classrooms, we see the results in depression and sleepless nights and worry and anxiety and not being able to study or concentrate, body image and eating issues, issues of sexual assault and abuse, emotional and verbal abuse, and more. We know that many of us here carry profound sexual wounds wrought by abusive adults, dating partners, strangers, and even spouses, or by our own misguided choices, tender scars even for those who are now survivors and thrivers. We know that many among us have been lured or coerced into exploitive sexual relationships by one more powerful or more charming or more manipulative. We also hear regularly about delightful, life-giving friendships and dating relationships, ones with balance and joy and care. For the remainder of our time this morning, we hope to encourage us to think about developing holistic, healthy, intimate relationships in our lives with God and with our companions. In doing so, we'll be drawing some on the intimacy work of Dr. Willard Crable, Goshen College Physician Emeritus, who died five years ago after a courageous battle with cancer. Willard founded the Human Sexuality Class in 1974, back when it was exceedingly difficult to talk about sexuality in campus or in churches, back before Mennonites had ever even had sex. 1974, not that long ago. <laughs> His intention in starting the course, which Ruth and I now co-teach, was to encourage students to see sexuality in the context of their whole lives and to enable them to discuss it comfortably. Willard realized that we cannot talk about being whole people and spiritually healthy people unless we can talk about and experience sexuality in holistic ways. His thought-provoking work on intimacy, which he developed in the Human Sexuality course, continues to resonate with our students and we hope also with you. Ruth and I and other faculty and student life personnel are always happy to talk with you about how to create healthy, satisfying relationships and how to steer away from relationships that may be damaging or destructive. In the biblical text, Jesus rarely speaks to issues related to sex and sexuality. He says precious little about these issues, at least in comparison with what he has to say about various forms of economic injustice. But behind what Jesus does say about sex and sexuality are the principles of respect and commitment and care. For Jesus, sexual relationships matter, in other words, and sexual relating that lifts our spirits is best within certain contexts, and it carries with it certain responsibilities. And while Jesus' primary emphasis was not on narrowly defined sex and sexuality, he was committed to the formation of deep, meaningful, and intimate relationships. Many of his stories, even ones that deal with money or with enemies or with the reign of God, have to do with developing relationships of trust and faithfulness. Jesus himself found it essential to surround himself with a group of friends whom we now call disciples. According to the biblical text, these relationships with men and with women were a fundamental part of who Jesus was. We all need and must have intimacy. Often we think of getting intimate as getting sexually intimate. 
But that's a rather truncated view, cut off from reality. We really shouldn't speak about intimacy primarily in terms of this, in terms of sex and sexuality, since that corrupts and bastardizes the term. Sexual relating doesn't create intimacy. As Dr. Crable frequently said, what often passes for intimacy is nothing more than the mechanical stimulation of genital nerve endings. Not that within appropriate context, stimulating genital nerve endings is a bad idea. But what most of us really long for is intimacy rather than genital sex. No one has ever died from a lack of oral genital or genital-genital intercourse, but people do die from a lack of intimacy. People who live alone and say they have no friends have a mortality rate equal to that of people who smoke two or three packs of cigarettes a day. We do need other people. We do need intimate relationships. Intimacy is the ability to experience an open, supportive, compassionate relationship with another person without fear of condemnation or loss of one's identity. It's knowing another person deeply and loving them anyway. Years ago, Dr. Crable developed what he called an intimacy wheel. If people want true intimacy, the relationships must include certain characteristics. Keith and I have much to say about these various characteristics or ingredients from our various disciplines and lived experiences. First of all, friendship. Are we drawn to the person for who he or she is? Do we like him or her? Can we imagine spending hours with them, just sitting around and talking or studying together in silence or just hanging out? Secondly, a sense of acceptance. Do we accept the person for who he or she is as a person? We shouldn't try to change or manipulate friends to alter their style or personality. We know we are not on trial with an intimate friend. An intimate friend sends a clear and unconditional message. You are okay, worthwhile, and valuable. Communication is a third ingredient in intimacy. Are we able to have open, honest communication with our friend? Uh, no deceit, no pretending, no lies, no hidden agenda. In learning to know a person, we should spend time exploring each other's social interests, talking about the world, talking about our faith, talking about what we enjoy doing with friends. We are not born knowing how to have healthy, intimate relationships, especially if we've not experienced those in our family of origin. But with books and counselors available and a willingness to take some communication risks, we have plenty of opportunities to learn. Equality is another important ingredient in intimacy. Partners in a relationship have to value each other equally. Dominance by one partner or the other destroys intimacy. That means no coercion, no power plays, no manipulation, no using another person for selfish purposes. We're increasingly convinced that egalitarian relationships are not possible when one or both partners regularly, regularly consume pornography. One of the biggest cultural changes in the United States over the last 30 years has been the widespread increasing acceptance and accessibility of overly demeaning sexual material. Americans now spend $13.3 billion a year on adult entertainment. That's more than we spend attending professional sporting events and more than we spend on the traditional film and music industries combined. 
What is wrong about most pornography is not that it shows naked bodies. Some of us, some of our finest art depicts, um, beautifully uh, depicts the naked human body. But that the sexuality that is um, um, depicted in pornography is too exploitive, too casual, too meaningless, too often violent and degrading and two, pervasively about unequal power relationships between men and women. We know, too, that porn persistently makes its viewers who seek to model their sexual lives after what they observe. We know it makes them feel sexually inadequate in their God-given genital allotments. We know that it makes them feel negatively uh, and assess negatively the bodies of their partners and create unrealistic expectation about the dynamism of their sexual encounters. We also know that regular consumption of pornography makes viewers more likely to accept the rape myth, that even when women say no, they really mean yes. Pornography reduces and chips away at our sexual wholeness. The fifth ingredient in health and intimacy is trust. There are enormous emotional risks in making yourself vulnerable to another person, and many of us know, almost all of us know, the pain of betrayal or loss. Often we're unwilling to open ourselves to another person after that for fear of being hurt. To a certain extent, there's some wisdom in not exposing ourselves fully to people at first blush. We should go slowly, not dumping all of our past personal and relational garbage early in the relationship. This creates a false sense of intimacy. Trust takes time to build, and we have to know that that trust will be reciprocated. Sixthly, intimacy is most possible between people who have shared values, who have the same lifestyle, who have the same life goals. A shared ethic, a shared religious faith, overlapping communities that we belong to, all of these help create and sustain intimacy. Affection is yet another ingredient of intimacy. Do you feel affection for the person? Does your face light up when his or her name is mentioned? Do you really care when they're hurting? Be aware that if you've been dating for a significant period of time, you probably won't feel those same goosebumps for your partner when someone mentions his or her name. But affection in a healthy, balanced relationship will deepen in other ways, like mutual concern and care for one another. The eighth ingredient, according to Willard, is an ability to touch in affirming, not exploiting, exploiting ways. It's normal in the first phase of a dating relationship for a very high level of physical and sexual attraction to be present. That's possible even after 25 years of marriage. Or even 35 years. It's normal for the physical and sexual attraction, which is at its peak during the first years, to decrease in its intensity as the relationship grows. In a healthy relationship, Physical intimacy is shared equally with the other areas of intimacy that have been simultaneously growing during the relationship. In a marriage that's beyond the honeymoon phase, touch may not be as intense or electric, but, but touch becomes safer, more secure, more known and the freedom that develops within this committed relationship has the ability to enhance the physical and sexual relating. In terms of intimate touch, if the touching makes us feel important and not used, 
then it's affirming touch. Intimate touching makes us feel better, not guilty. True intimacy means being with another person in a way that is closer than the contact of two bodies. As we've already suggested, sexual relating does not create intimacy. In some relationships, when all the other components are present, it may energize and cap the relationship, but it certainly doesn't create intimacy in relationships where intimacy is not already present. Sexual intercourse is often used by people to shield themselves from the vulnerability of true intimacy, or in the case of promiscuity, people may be searching desperately for real intimacy. Time is also an essential ingredient in intimacy. Intimacy is a process, and there's no easy, instant way to achieve it, despite what our songs and movies might tell us. True intimacy cannot be fallen into or out of in rapid succession. Be aware of thinking that you have attained true intimacy if you are early in your dating relationship. It's worth saying a word here about hooking up, a term most of you are familiar with and many of you have experienced. Uh, some sorts of sexual interaction that's often a one-time commitment anywhere from deep kissing to sexual intercourse. Hookups are not about intimacy and are destructive to healthy sexuality and holistic spirituality. Most university students who have engaged in hookups say they accumulate an average of 11 hookup partners in their college career. And most of those hookups occur after the participants have consumed alcohol. Sometimes students and others defend their hookup behaviors by noting that they always practice safe sex in their hookups. This is perhaps one of the most misleading misnomers of the postmodern period. Safe sex does nothing to protect partners from the boredom of mechanical sex or from the hurt and betrayal and jealousy that frequently go along with promiscuity or from the grief and depression that accompany a broken heart. There's no condom for that. There's no prophylactic strong enough to contain such brokenness. The point here is simply to say that intimacy takes time. It's not something that happens overnight. And finally, commitment is essential for genuine intimacy. True intimacy requires the kind of loving commitment that keeps us present for and involved with a friend or partner and keeps us caring and loving over time. In light of this understanding of intimacy, it is clear that we can have intimate friendships with both men and with women. Many non-genital friendships are far more intimate than many marriages. That means single, celibate people can have intimate relationships as well as anyone else. It's also clear that we cannot truly be intimate with a large number of people at the same time. We simply don't have enough hours in the day. But together, these 10 ingredients allow for a healthy kind of intimacy. It's a sort of intimacy we believe we really yearn for in our lives, and that's the sort of intimacy that's well integrated with our spirituality. Sexuality, spirituality, and intimacy are complex subjects to talk about, and we've intentionally left out much of what we could and would like to say. Take one of our classes. Um, you can hear the rest. Uh, our intent today has been to help us all understand the relationship between healthy sexuality and healthy spirituality, between love of God and love of others, between true intimacy and vacuous or meaningless encounters. It's our hope that by talking about the kind of, kinds of intimacy that lead to healthy relationships, you will be able to make more informed choices and to seek to uh, integrate your sexuality and your spirituality.
you're really doing so many things well already, as we know from working with many of you in various contexts. We're marvelously impressed by the high level of respect and communication in intimate relationships here on campus. We challenge all of us to respect our bodies and respect our spirits, to make conscious choices about the ways in which we will relate with others, and to seek the true intimacy that is not life-taking, but is rather life-giving. As our closing hymn says, in a nod to both sexuality and spirituality, friend and lover, in your closeness, I am known and held and blessed. In your promise is my comfort. In your presence, I may rest. Amen and amen. Before we receive a benediction from Keith, I invite you to turn in your green, sing the journey to number 34, Loving Spirit. Three, four. And now, go forth, thanking God for your good sexual bodies and the extraordinary grace of blessed sexuality, honoring yourself and those you love by seeking sexual wholeness for the sake of God's people and for the furtherance of God's reign. Amen. <laughs>